Well, this morning we start a new sermon series in one of the Old Testament's brief prophetic books, the book of Nahum. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 734. In this little book, we'll see a side of God that you don't often hear a lot about. This is the side of God that makes powerful tyrants appear puny and makes Navy SEALs look like sissies. This book of Nahum is about God's anger, God's vengeance. That's something that embarrasses a lot of Christians. So we tend not to talk about it in polite company. But it's an important part of who God has shown himself to be. And this side of God is very good news for the people of God. So when a bully attacks you in the schoolyard, what you most need is an athletic teacher to pull the bully off you. When a thug assaults you in a dark alley, what you most need is a timely policeman to apprehend the criminal. When an invading army threatens your borders, what you most need is a mighty military to fend them off and protect your freedom. God is all of these things for his people and more because he is angry at sin. He's not just angry at sin, actually. He is furious at wicked and evil people. And he will not relent until he has demolished evil and oppression on the last day. So when his patience runs out and his restraint reaches its limits, you need to make sure you won't be blown away in the fire of his fury. You need to know this morning that there is no way out but in. That's the main idea this morning. There's no way out but in. You can't escape his fury by fleeing from it, only by racing toward it, toward him. That's where we're heading this morning. You can see in your outline that we'll see that you can't change who he is. You can't escape what he does. And there is no way out but in. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes and give us a grand and renewed vision of your great and awesome power and your fiery wrath. Please help us not to be embarrassed of you or ashamed of you, but grant us 
remarkable and excessive comfort in you. Just as Nahum seeks to offer us, as even the name Nahum means comfort. Strengthen us in you that we might set our hope more fully on the Lord Jesus Christ as our refuge. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we must grapple with this morning is that you can't change who he is. Here are the first few verses of the prophet Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum begins his book by showing us who God is. And to get there, the very first thing to know from verse 1 is that this book is an oracle, which means a, a prophetic speech, and it's concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the very same city that Jonah was sent to preach to. Jonah, whose book we just finished studying. Nineveh was the city of of evil, oppressive, uh, the capital city of the, the empire. And yet it was the city that responded to Jonah's message of destruction with immediate remorse and reliance on God. And so God had mercy. Well, Nahum now writes about 80 to 100 years after the events of the book of Jonah, when Nineveh, as the capital of the empire of Assyria, has fallen right back into her wicked ways. By this time, Assyria has destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They've carried that portion of God's people off into exile. Assyria has, has already come and, and besieged Jerusalem, threatening to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah as well. But at the 11th hour, God delivered King Hezekiah, who sought him for refuge. Assyria has taken down not only the Israelites, but also the Phoenicians and the Egyptians. No other military could resist the iron weapons of Assyria with their inferior bronze weapons. The king who ruled over Assyria at the peak of its power, and you can see on the map here how how expansive it was, the king who ruled at the peak was Esarhaddon who claimed, quote, I am powerful, I am all-powerful, I am without equal among all kings. It was not long after that that the prophet Nahum took up his pen to write. Nahum came from a tiny little country on a minuscule plot of land, the only plot of land in the Middle East, that Assyria failed to conquer. 
on this map. Dark green shows the early empire from the 9th century BC. The light green portion shows the later heights of the empire, the height of its power in the 7th century BC. And that little yellow dot near the coast is the unconquered kingdom of Judah from which Nahum speaks and writes his prophecy. You see how they were surrounded completely. Nahum writes for the people of God in Judah. And what does he want them to know? According to verse 2, Yahweh their God is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. And We could take the map down now, thank you. This God, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who rules over the sea and the dry land, he is downright mad. He's piping hot towards Nineveh. His adversaries will not get away with their evil, oppressive, and bullying behaviors. He will, at the end of verse 2, take vengeance on them. See, many people save up money to help them out in a dry spell in the future. Well, God doesn't save up money. God saves up wrath. And he holds on to it just so he can unleash it in full fury against his enemies. That's what the last line of verse 2 means. He keeps or he stores up wrath for his enemies. Now, of course, anger is not all that God is. Verse 3 tells us that he is slow to anger. And he's great in power. With this phrase, slow to anger, Nahum refers back to God's glorious appearance to Moses on Mount Sinai. The, the very same thing that God said that made Jonah want to flee and not preach to Nineveh is the thing that Nahum's tapping into here. Back when Israel was founded as a nation, on that mountain, God wanted Moses and all Israel to know that he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Nahum refers back to that foundational description of God, but only to the slow to anger part. Nahum says nothing about grace or mercy. He skips right on past that stuff to tell us also that God is great in power. In other words... Though God is slow to anger, he does still, in fact, get really angry when the time is right. And when he is angry, he is not like a kid throwing a tantrum in a toy store who just needs to be quietly ushered out until he calms down and life can go back to normal. No, God is great in power. God has the heavy artillery to back up his anger with strategic missile launches that never miss their targets but leave his enemies writhing and desolate. 
Friends, this is simply who God is. You can't change it. You can't tame it. You can't control it. And by all means, please don't ever apologize for it. But you do have a choice. Will you remain guilty before him? Or will you find a way to acquire innocence? Because verse 3 tells us that by no means will he clear the guilty. Those who are guilty of crossing him, of attacking his people, of defaming his glory and defiling his world, they will fall. God is angry and God is powerful. And in his powerful anger, he does not miss. Does that kind of God terrify you? Just keep in mind that when you are the one who is under attack by evil men or evil governments, isn't this exactly the sort of God you would want to have as your protector? You don't want a God who is all smiles and friendliness but can do nothing to defend you. And you don't want a God who is angry, but who has no real power to do anything about it. And by all means, you do not want a God who is angry, but who sometimes hits the wrong targets. Because maybe his fury just makes him a little wild and reckless from time to time. No, when life is hard, when evil sets its sights on you and tries to shut you up or beat you down, Nahum's God is exactly the kind of God you want. You can't change who he is and you wouldn't want to. But maybe you think you can outsmart him. Can you just keep your dark little secrets hidden and keep your distance from his angry gaze because then he won't bother you and he'll leave you alone, right? Wrong. Because point number two is that you can't escape what he does. You can't escape what he does. Picking up in the middle of verse three. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. In this second stanza of the poem, Nahum moves from who God is to what God does. Verse 3, his fury causes tempestuous 
storms. In verse 4, at his words, the most lush and lively places on earth, that's what Bashan and Carmel are, the most lush and lively places on earth become dry and desolate. You may have heard the domestic proverb, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, in verse 5, that saying goes for the Lord as well. When he is unhappy, ain't nobody in all the world happy. The world itself and everything in it trembles. His anger is terrible. And not even the highest mountains want to get in his way. Friends, you wouldn't like him when he's angry. All that makes for pretty vivid imagery, but what does it mean? Well, what does a whirlwind do when it moves across the eastern seaboard in the heights of hurricane season? What happens when a village's source of water dries up? What happens when pieces of the earth's crust bang into each other? Or when volcanoes spit up what lies inside them? All of this is getting at one thing. You see, God was able to create everything out of nothing by simply speaking a few words. And so with a few more words, he can take everything away just as easily. God, in his anger, has the capacity and the power to bring about desolation and destruction to such a degree that something like the 2011 earthquake in Japan might be a rather pleasant alternative. Do you remember that earthquake? It it, it measured a 9.0 on the Richter scale. It caused a tsunami with 130-foot high waves traveling at 435 miles per hour and crashing six miles inland. Yeah, that would be better than facing God when he is angry. And I'm not exaggerating. The Bible says in at least three places in both Old and New Testaments, in Hosea, Luke, and Revelation, that when God unleashes the full fury of his anger, people will beg the mountains to fall on them instead. It would be better to be crushed under a landslide than to have to face the wrath of the Almighty God. That's why Nahum asks some crucial questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Yet you might think that God is your plaything for now. That he's nice to talk to when you need him. But when you don't need him, you can just put him back on the shelf. You think you like him when he's pleased. But you wouldn't like him when he's angry. His fury 
goes forth from him at the end of verse 6, like an explosive surge of fire seeping into every corner, finding its way to everyone and everything placed in hiding, scorching, burning, assaulting, whatever stands in its way. And as I said before, God does not miss. You can be certain that if you have crossed him, he will find you. You will not get away with the way you have treated people. You will not get away with the property you have stolen or with the innocence you have stolen. You will not get away with the belief that you don't need God, that you can be God. Friends, you can try to improve your health, to deepen your pockets, to extend your life and diversify your portfolio, but you cannot escape the impending flood aimed at those who flee from the God of heaven and earth. There is no escape if you try to run from him. His fury will find you out. His fiery missiles will reach you wherever you go. Now, perhaps that's really bad news for some of you. But I think that's really good news for many of you. Because it means that evil and oppression will not last forever. The jealous and avenging God will make certain to one day bring it all to an end. So if you have pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, and you have ever suffered for having done so, you can take heart from this text. Your classmates, your colleagues, your attackers may think they've gotten the upper hand as though their disrespect, their assault, or their attempt to tear you down and destroy you has won the day. But if the mountains cannot stand against the God to whom you have fled for refuge, neither can your puny little persecutors. So you need to know that God will not be patient forever. He is slow to anger, but that does not mean that his anger will never arrive. When it does, there is no stopping it. There is no place to hide. There is no way to run from it. But that doesn't mean the jig is up. There is still hope. But your only hope is to recognize that there is, point number three, no way out but in. There's no way out but in. You see, when God eventually lets loose his ferocious vengeance against evil, you cannot survive if you try to run from him. There is hope only if you run toward him. 
Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 8 repeats what what verses 1 through 6 have already been talking about. The complete end coming to God's adversaries. The overflowing flood breaking out against his enemies into darkness. But verse 7 holds that ray of sunshine we've been waiting for. Because side by side with the fact that God is angry is the fact in verse 7 that God is good. Those truths do not contradict. In fact, they are necessary to hold together. Without his anger, his goodness would not be good. You see, it would not be good for him to allow oppressors to win or to allow evil to have free reign. That's not good. Without his goodness... His anger would be wild and unjust. It would not be just for God to simply flip out and attack everyone and everything. We need his goodness and his anger side by side, two sides of the same coin. And because the Lord is good, verse 7 says, he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. The only thing that can protect you from God is, is God. When his fury breaks out like a wildfire taking out everything that is hidden or that is fleeing from him, he offers himself as a stronghold. God himself provides shelter from the storm of his anger. God himself secures a safe space for those who wish to live. But access to that, in order to access that stronghold, in order to enter that safe space, you must run toward him. Verse 7 says, He knows those who take refuge in him. When my sons and I fight a nerf battle in my home, Those of them who are smart know that if they run away from me, I will nail them in the back. (laughs) I have a clearer shot that way. But those who run toward me find they can jam me up and prevent me from targeting them. Now, you can't jam God, okay? (laughs) But the point is, is that running toward him is your only way out. So when the day of trouble comes, the only solution is to find a place that will withstand the fury of God's anger, and that place is with God himself. You can't get away from him, but you can come out unscathed if you are with him. What Nahum is talking about here is not just having a periodic proximity to God as though going to church once in a while or invoking his name once in a while is enough to keep you cool with him 
No, he's talking about a depth of intimacy and relationship that must be cultivated. He's talking about loyalty and allegiance. He's talking about swearing felty to this God, bowing the knee to him, submitting one's life fully to him. You see, you can't take refuge in him at the last moment when you see the flames approaching you or after the missile targeting you has been launched. You must find that refuge before the day of trouble comes. You must have your camp well established at ground zero of God before he launches the nukes. If you hide in him and take refuge in him, he knows who you are and he will preserve you through the fire. And this is possible only because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God that Nahum wrote about later became a man walking around and talking on the earth. And he warned people constantly about the wrath that was certain to come. And he assured people that those who attached themselves to him would be the only ones to escape that wrath unharmed. Jesus claimed that anyone who harms one of his people would be better off tying a large rock about the neck and jumping into the ocean because they wouldn't like him when he's angry. Jesus said that anyone who takes advantage of other people would be better off cutting off a hand or plucking out an eyeball because they would not like him when he's angry. Though slow to anger, Jesus did let us see a glimpse of the beginning of his fury. Whenever religious people used their religious activity as a way to sugarcoat acts of oppression and violence, he started flipping tables and yelling. They didn't like him when he was angry. And yet Jesus always gave people a way out. And the way out was not to run away from him, but always to run toward him. Because the Lord Jesus knows those who take refuge in him. He said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, the only hope to escape the fire of his wrath is to be held in the powerful palm of his hand. We need a God who is not only good, but also powerful and mighty to save which is why Jesus goes on to say, My Father who has given these sheep to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, the most important application of this text this morning is that we must seek refuge in Jesus. Most of you have already found your refuge there, so I'm, I'm speaking particularly to those who are still considering whether you can trust Jesus. 
You must seek refuge in him. And all that means today is to call him Lord. Ask him to rescue you. That's what I've been trying to communicate through this entire sermon. Jesus is there and he's ready. But when Nahum wrote his prophecy, he did not primarily have rescue in mind. Nahum was not trying to save the Ninevites like God did through Jonah. No, Nahum was writing to the people of Israel and he meant these as words as words of consolation to those who had already taken refuge in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Nahum wanted them to know that their suffering under oppression would not last forever, that their oppressors would not get away with their dark deeds. So I have one final application for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this. Do not fear talking about the avenging wrath of God. It's a topic I think many Christians try to avoid these days. I'm certainly guilty of staying away from it in polite company. But we should not be afraid to talk about it, and by all means, do not attempt to castrate it. Don't make it sound like a mere temper tantrum. Don't make it sound weak. Don't make it sound like God just enjoys making people suffer because they don't do what he tells them. That's not what this is about. The purpose of this doctrine, whether you read it in Nahum or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 or in Revelation chapter 19 or wherever else it comes up, the purpose is generally to comfort those who have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ by assuring them that evil will not last forever. So when we soften that doctrine, we undercut that comfort. People who have suffered deeply at the hands of evil men really need to hear that God is just and he will hold evildoers accountable. When some Bible teachers or churches come along proclaiming that love wins and nobody will go to hell in the end, there is no good news in that. So you don't need to apologize. You don't need to be ashamed of the wrath of God. God's anger and his vengeance are necessarily rooted, according to Nahum 1.7, in God's goodness. If his wrath is weak and emasculated, then you can't really trust his goodness either. If the lion has no bite then there's no need for safety and Jesus died for nothing. If the lion has no bite, then you can't trust him to protect the pride. Where's the goodness in that? So it's okay if you don't like his anger. That means you're starting to understand it because you wouldn't like him when he's angry. But please, don't try to muzzle his anger or amputate it from his character because you'll find it that much more difficult to take refuge in his goodness. And when his anger does finally 
slowly build to a breaking point and he finally unleashes it on the world, you'll need to know that there's no way out but in. You need a shield. You need a refuge. You need a place of protection. And that's exactly what Jesus came to provide. My little children, I'm telling these things to you so that you may not sin But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the refuge, the defense barrier for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for providing Jesus to be our refuge in the day of trouble. Our only hope is in him. Help us to run to him and hold fast to him that we might faithfully proclaim who you really are, not who we want you to be, not who we wish you were, but who you are. Jealous, avenging, and wrathful against sinners. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.